Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. You know, in worship, oftentimes we can be in the presence of God and we just, we just want to get absolutely drenched in his presence, don't we? We want to receive from him. We want to be soaked with all of the goodness that God has for us. But I think if we're honest, sometimes when the word comes, we can kind of think, hmm, that's an interesting insight. That would be good for, for my friend. Uh, I'd, really, I'd really love to share this with somebody else, um, but I don't want to think too much about how it might apply to my life because that might have implications for me. Is that a fair, fair enough comment? Sometimes we might think that sometimes. Well, I would just like to pray that this morning, Lord Jesus, we would have nothing above us that would stop your word coming and falling fresh on us this morning, Lord. Lord, let us be saturated with your presence in your word this morning. Lord, let what you have to say to us hit us, make an impact in us, and produce fruit in our lives this morning. Let us put no barrier in the way. Lord, let us receive from you this morning, and please help me do a good job. Amen. Well, we've been having a fun time in Numbers, haven't we? In the book of Numbers. It's been, uh, it's been a good time so far, and today will be no different. Um, we're going to be in Numbers 33 towards the, the last few verses of that chapter, but before we get there, has anybody ever said or ever had it said to you, you can be anyone you want to be? You can, you can be anything you want to be, anyone you want to be. It's a, it's a lovely sentiment, isn't it? But, you know, I think that that statement, it can be really helpful. And actually, it can be really harmful as well. It can be really harmful sometimes when society hears you can be anyone you want to be and thinks, yeah, that's right. I can be anyone I want to be. I'm not going to let anything or anyone else try and box me in or or define me. Why should I be restrained by my culture or my family or, or my physical makeup or some divine being? It can be quite harmful when we take it in that way and think, I can be anyone that I want to be. Or it can be really helpful when what we mean by it is dream big, you know? Uh, uh, Take on opportunities, embrace challenges, um, do all that you can to make a difference, and importantly, find out who you are in God and do all that he has for you to do and be all that he wants you to be. In this context, we're, we're really saying be, you can be anyone that God wants you to be. And, and the outcome of, of that way of thinking is very, very good, actually. I think if we take it in the previous way, then we can find ourselves in this kind of weird, fuzzy, confusing place where equality and sameness have come to mean the same thing. And actually, any kind of boundary can be seen as a, as a negative obstacle to be removed because I should be able to be exactly the same as everybody else. And that can actually lead to a very, very bad outcome. But the way that God has it for us is very, very good. But you know, whichever way that you kind of take that phrase, you can be anyone you want to be, I think beneath it, the sentiment is the same, which is that we we want to thrive in life, don't we? We want to thrive, we want to flourish, we want to make the most of life. And that's really very biblical. In fact, right in the very first chapter of the Bible, God says, let us, that's us, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our own image so that, essentially, they would thrive and flourish and, and rule and have dominion over all of the creatures of this, 
of the sea and the sky and to multiply and to flourish and thrive. It's very biblical to thrive in life. God hasn't made us to just survive. He's made us to thrive, hasn't he? And in line with that, he's made us some really thrivey promises. He said to us things like, I know the plans I have for you, and they're plans for good, for a hope and a future and a purpose. So, wow, what a, what a thrivey promise. He said to us things like, you know, man, man may uh, decide the ways, but I will guide the steps. Wow, God's going God's to guide my steps. That's so thrivey. He says things like, you are a called out people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Wow, what a thrivey promise. All of these amazing promises. And I, sometimes I think, you know, I would, I'd love my life to look what I think it might look like if all of those promises were in real fullness in my life. And I think you could be fooled into thinking that if that was the case, then it would be, uh, it would be all you know, happy rainbows and, and warm hugs and just sailing through life on a nice cloud as a, as a little baby plays a harp with kind of a, a summer chill playlist in the background. But I just don't think that's reality. <laughs> I don't think that thriving in life actually looks like that. I think that actually I know that my life is much more ups and downs. It's, it's many challenges, and, and Stephen described last week about the journey of our life and the monotony and the mundaneness sometimes, and I don't know about you, but that's certainly what my life looks like. It's not all happy rainbows and warm hugs. But what if my life looking like that, and your life, I presume, looking like that as well, was the perfect context to thrive? Was the perfect context to thrive in life? What if thriving looks like flourishing in all that God has made us to be and do right now, today, with all of the ups and downs and with all of the challenges? What if this life I'm living today with Jesus is the promised land that God talked about in the Bible? Life in the kingdom of God, life in the promised land. I'm living in the promised land. You're living in the promised land. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're living in the promised land. And if you haven't, Come on in. It's a great place to be. But let me warn you, there's ups and downs and challenges. And you know, God as ever is really helpful here because he spoke to the Israelites all about how to thrive in the promised land. And it has to do with killing baddies and filling boundaries. It's not all plain sailing and everything's easy. It's killing baddies and it's filling, flourishing, living to the edge of our boundaries, but not pushing them, not going beyond them. So have a look with me in Numbers chapter 33, and we're just going to read a few verses from 50 to the end of that chapter. So here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Tell the Israelites, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you must drive out. Everybody say, drive out. You must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy. Everybody say, destroy. Destroy all their stone images and cast images. And demolish. Everybody say, demolish. Demolish all their high places. 
You are to take possession of the land and settle in it because I have given you the land to possess. You are to receive the land as an inheritance by lot according to your clans. Increase the inheritance for a large clan and decrease it for a small one. Whatever place the lot indicates for someone will be his. You will receive an inheritance according to your ancestral tribe. Sounds great. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become thorns in your eyes and in your sides. They will harass you in the land where you will live, and what I have planned to do to them, I will do to you. Instructions for thriving in the promised land. If we want to thrive in life, we need to kill the baddies and fill our boundaries. We need to kill the baddies and fill our boundaries. And God highlights for us here three kinds of baddies that rear their ugly heads in the land, the promised land in our lives, that we need to drive out, destroy, and demolish. It's pretty aggressive stuff, isn't it? it is. Everyone feeling aggressive this morning? <laughs> Great. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really aggressive, so, so we'll be fine. Not really. So, drive out. Drive out the inhabitants. Drive out the evil inhabitants. These guys were, were really bad. The inhabitants in the land of Canaan, they, they were very evil, bad people. Drive out evil. What I think we're seeing here is drive out sin. Oh, I dropped the S word. Sin. Oh, it's, it's, it's an uneasy one. But, you know, I think, I think sin, a helpful way for us to think of it is it, anything that misses the mark where the mark is God. If you imagine a person with a bow and arrow and God's the bullseye and oh, you miss the mark and, and, it's, and it's sin, you, you'd not hit what God, God's best for you, what God has for you. And this, this word drive out is this word dispossess. It means that, that sin has the opportunity to possess. It, it, it has the opportunity to take ownership. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who is going to take ownership in my life? Is it going to be sin or is it going to be how about the God of all the universe who lives inside of me and has power over all things? I'd like him to take ownership in my life. And I think even sometimes we can, we can get the bow and arrow out and instead of aiming for God and missing, we can sometimes see the target as sin and we're just trying to aim as far away from it as possible. That might sound maybe slightly subtle, but what I'm trying to express there is that we can make compromise. We can fraternize with the enemy sometimes. We can potentially allow some wiggle room because rather than aiming at God and potentially missing sometimes, we're just trying to aim away from sin. But we're not to allow any wiggle room. Do you remember that Satan appeared as a snake? That's a real wiggly animal. And if we allow wiggle room, he'll wiggle himself in. He'll make himself at home. He'll take possession. He'll take some ownership. But God has not, God doesn't want that for us. You know, when you wash your hands, you don't just wash nine fingers and leave one off, do you? That's, it's not a, that's not the full job. If you want to make something and you don't want it to rise, who knows that if you just put a tiny bit of yeast in, the whole thing is bound to, to rise, at least a little bit. So we mustn't leave any, any wiggle room. And there's this real kind of stark warning for us. If you don't drive out the inhabitants, then they'll become like a thorn in your eye and a thorn in your side. And ultimately, you'll be driven out of the land. That's, the, that's kind of the end result. But 
I don't want to allow compromise in my life with sin. I don't want to allow wiggle room, so much so that I'm, I'm blind to see all that God has for me around me, and I'm immobile to move into all that God has for me. I don't want a thorn in my eye and a thorn in my side. I want, I want to, to drive out sin. And so I've got a secret weapon for you, a secret weapon to killing the baddie of sin. You ready for this? You can have your own secret weapon if you like. You don't have to choose this one. But this is just something that, that I think works for me because sin it will inevitably come up in the promised land. And every time I see it, I want to have a secret weapon that I can come up to it with. And so my secret weapon, you feel free to use it, is speaking in tongues. Secret weapon to fighting the baddie of sin, speak in tongues. Because drive out means to dispossess. Yeah? And if I speak in tongues, then the Holy Spirit is resident in me. He takes the whole of me. He is in possession of me, and he's in charge. And speaking in tongues is bound to fill me with the Holy Spirit. As I speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14 tells me it builds me up, it edifies me. As I speak in tongues, I'm so overflowing that actually it flows out of me and into the land as well, and it makes it a land of, of flourishing and green places. So if you would like a secret weapon to fight the baddie of sin, speak in tongues. Or pick something else that works for you, but I know that that works for me. Feel free to use it. Destroy idols is the next one. After we're done driving out sin, nice and simple, we destroy idols. Why is it important to destroy idols? These are the things that we, we read about, the, the cast images, the stone images, and, and it says destroy them, destroy those idols. I think God knows that we love to put things and people on pedestals, don't we? It's in our nature somehow. He knew the Israelites' track record of what happened with that golden calf in Exodus. you remember? Moses went up the mountain, and he comes down, and Aaron and all the people have decided that now this golden calf was God. And they were going to worship this golden idol. But, you know, it got me thinking, why, why doesn't God allow us to kind of have idols that are to do with him? Not bad idols to do with other gods and other things, but why, if we were so um, prone to, to idol worship, then why not have idols that are for God? But you know what? God, God doesn't have idols. He has us. Other gods... They, uh, other gods and, and religions that go, went with them, they had idols because they were so separate, they were so unreachable, they were so unsearchable and unknowable that they had this idol which cemented that truth, if you like, which said, you can't contact, get in, be in touch with, with God, but here's an idol for you to have you something physical that you can interact with. That's how other religions worked. And God said, I don't work like that. I don't want to be unknowable, unsearchable, unlovable. I don't want idols. I want a people that are made in my image. They will represent me. Nothing else, but my people will be my representatives. They'll be made in my image. They'll be just like me. And what that says about God and about us is really important. What it says about God is that he has made nothing above us than him. There is, there is nothing between me and God. There is no idol. There is no higher thing 
between me and God. He's made me in his image and made me to rule and reign and multiply and flourish from that position. And he's made you like that as well. And it says about me that there is, it's, that I need to know that, that, that there is nothing there. There's nothing between me and God. And so every time that I try and make an idol to sit in that place, it not only distorts the image of God that I see, because I suddenly I'm seeing everything through this kind of lens of how can God fit into this thing that I've made worthy of my time and attention and, and, and everything else, but it, actually, it also actually distorts the image of God in me to other people. Do you see that? Because when people, when people see me, God's design is that they see me and they see him. But if they see me and I'm pointing to something else, then they're not seeing God. God's made me to be his image bearer. And if people see me and I'm pointing to money, possessions, family, relationships, routine, organization, any of these things that, that can become idols in our lives, any of these things that, that we put in a position of sitting beneath it somehow, we're not pointing to God. So it's distorting the image of God. And that's why I love it that this word destroy means vanish. That's what the word means. It means to cause it to vanish. So God is calling us to cause idols to vanish so that there is nothing distorting the image of God that we see and that others see through us. And so what's a secret weapon that can help us to make idols vanish? Well, I love to imagine Jesus, to see Jesus. When you start to look at Jesus, when you start to see Jesus, when you find in the word passages like Revelation 4 and 5 that describe Jesus, or like the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is there with Elijah and Moses, and all of a sudden all the disciples see is just Jesus. Or when you read right at the end of the Bible that there, there's no need for the sun or the moon anymore because Jesus is the light that will light up everything. When I start to imagine Jesus in that way, when I start to see the absolutely blinding light of who he is, everything else vanishes. There's nothing else that I'm interested in. There's nothing else that deserves a place of worship in my life. Only God. So if you would like a secret weapon to help you to deal with idols in your life, should they be there, can I encourage you to see Jesus, to see the wonderful light of who he is and allow all else to vanish. So this is good. We've driven out sin. We've destroyed idols. All that's left to do is demolish. And I want to say this. It's demolish. For me, I'm taking from this demolish strongholds. The, the, the words that we read in the verses are demolish the high places. But we'll, we'll get there in just a second. But a stronghold, it's like uh, the opposite of, of dancing. See what I mean? Not at all. When you're dancing, you're, you're moving, you're shaking, and you're free. A stronghold, however... It's difficult to move because it's a stronghold. It's difficult to shake because it has a strong hold on you. And it ties you down. So it's the opposite of dancing, right? 
So if you're ever wondering what's a stronghold, it's the opposite of dancing. And if we leave strongholds in place, then it's like leaving the, the stage set, leaving the door open, leaving a platform for the enemy. And this was literally the case for high places. High places were these actual high up places that were made for the worship of, of other gods and of idols. It's where you'd find the evil inhabitants and the idols that they were supposed to drive out and destroy. So they were, they were literal physical high places and they, they just couldn't get rid of them. They couldn't get rid of these high places. They were a real stronghold for them. You read through the book of Kings and you read time after time, king after king after king, but they couldn't get rid of the high places, but they couldn't get rid of the high places. They did all of these good things, all, all this, this, that and the other, but they couldn't get rid of the high places. It was a real stronghold. And there's a really sad verse in 1 Kings 11:7 where King Solomon all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge and, and everything, that he, all, everything he had, everything that God had given him. And it says this in 1 Kings 11 verse 7. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. Just couldn't get rid of the, of the high places. They were such a stronghold. And you know, for the Israelites, they're kind of nostalgic view of Egypt was like a stronghold for them. They couldn't shake it. They couldn't get, get away from this idea that being back in Egypt would be better. Their desire to be like other nations was like a stronghold for them. Lord, give us a king like other nations. But I'm God. I can be your king. Give us a king like other nations. That was a stronghold for them. There were things that were strongholds. And for us, strongholds may exist because of tradition or because of believing a lie. We might buy into false ideologies or philosophies. Unforgiveness and bitterness can, can have strongholds in our life, past hurts, lack of self-worth, fear, a need for control. All of these things can be strongholds in our life. And you know this word demolish that, that they're using in, in the word here for demolishing strongholds, demolishing high places, it's this really harsh word which means to exterminate, to annihilate and I think it's so harsh because strongholds can actually be quite subtle. And they can start off kind of subtle and they can build up and build up and build up. And before you know it, you're 50 miles down the road with this thing that you cannot get rid of because you should have annihilated it, exterminated it. It's this harsh, harsh word. But all is not lost because God's given us a secret weapon to kill strongholds, to kill the body of a stronghold. And this, is just, this just works for me. You can use it if you like. I know it works for me. You feel free. If there's something else that's better for you, that's fine. But for me, if I want to kill a stronghold, I want to send in the army. Strongholds require an army. They're strongholds. They require an army to come in, exterminate them, and annihilate them. And guess what? God has put me in an army. God's put me in a family. God's put me in a church. And you guys, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you're my army. And so if I want to demolish a stronghold, I'm going to be drawing on verses like Ephesians 6, 18, which tells me to ask those around me to pray for me, to intercede for me with prayer. It describes the armor of God. And in that same setting, in that same context, it says, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to send in the army against some of these strongholds in our life. 
If we can identify something that's there, that's got a hold on us, that's difficult to move, it's difficult to shake, and it's tying us down, it may well be a stronghold. And we may well need an army to come alongside us, to stand with us in prayer, and to take it down. That was only verse 52. Don't worry. So we're going to drive out, we're going to destroy and demolish. I told you it was aggressive, didn't I? It's aggressive work. But do you know, if we do these things, if we can commit ourselves to be uh, at the work of these things, then we will flourish and we will fill our boundaries. God has put our boundaries in very pleasant places. Psalm 16 verse 6 tells us that, that our boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. I've loved hearing those words over the past couple of weeks. Our boundaries are in pleasant places. And they, they provide a context within which we can flourish. They provide a healthy, God-given limitation for us within which we can thrive. You know, if we have too many options, it can be difficult to know where and how to really flourish and thrive. Like when you go into a restaurant and there's 100 items on the menu, and you feel, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to choose here? But when you go into somewhere and they just make the most delicious burgers, and there's only a few options, but you just know each one is going to tickle those taste buds and it's going to just make you happy. It's easy to, to, to flourish in that context, I think at least. Amen. I can hear the amens around the room. So there's certain boundaries for us, and I just want to say that there are boundaries of identity, boundaries of calling, and boundaries of season. And it's not just to, to really spend a long time diving into the depths of these things, but to encourage you to, to discover for yourself and within the context of church family what are your boundaries of identity, your boundaries of calling, and your boundaries of season? But just to give us some ideas about those things, you might want to type into the chat at this point, so am I, or, or me too, or if you something a little bit more Christian, amen, or hallelujah. But here's some boundaries of identity that I believe are true for me and for you. I am a new creation. That's who I am. And that boundary means that the old has gone and the new has come. It means that I'm not a slave to sin. It means that I'm not bound by things of my past. But I'm a new creation, a brand new creation. I am chosen by God. That's who I am. It means that I'm not an afterthought. I'm not left out. I'm chosen by God. I can flourish within that boundary. I'm God's holy temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's who I am. I'm made in God's image. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm God's workmanship. That's who I am. They're the boundaries of my identity. For, for me personally, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a husband to my wife, Rosanna, which means that outside of that boundary is singleness. Outside of that boundary is being somebody else's husband. I'm a husband to Rosanna. That's my boundary, and I will flourish within that boundary. I'm a child of God. I'm apprentice of Jesus Christ. I'm a father, I'm a pastor. All of these things are about who I am. And many of those will be true for you as well. The beauty of boundaries in our identity is that it allows me to be me and you to be you so that we can be the we that God wants us to be together. Don't try to be an arm if God's made you a foot. Stop acting like the tail when God's made you the head. Be who God's made you to be. People thrive when everyone plays their part. 
kind of in, in the mix of who we are and what we're here for is, is this um, word called calling. What are we called to? And Jesus was incredibly clear and focused on what he was called to do. In his relatively short time and location of ministry, he was able to get to the end point and say, God, Father, it is finished. He fulfilled his calling. And, you know, for us, God's, God's called us to certain things. He's called us all to some of the same things, like being disciples, like spreading the gospel, all those things like that. But he's also called us to some more personal things as well. And so I just wanted to throw a couple of questions out there which, which might, um, you might resonate with or it might start you to think, what's God, what's God called me to, to do right now? Uh, what is it that stirs you to get out of bed in the morning? When do you feel God's pleasure? What do others tell you you do best? How or where are you gifted? Is there a common thread in your life? What has God said to you? Answering some of those questions might help us to understand more and more what our calling is. And it's important that we know that because that has an impact on me today. I can, I can ignore some of those questions and, and put them off to the future when perhaps I'm a bit more ready. But actually, as we'll see now, that within my calling, uh, there are certain seasons. And there's, if, in order for me to flourish in my calling, God wants me to flourish in, in each season. You will only flourish within the boundaries of your calling if you'll flourish within the boundaries of each season. I'm told that uh, a tree's branches only grow as as far as its roots go down and across. But you know, if when it's a season of, of winter, when it's time for pruning, when it's time for roots to go down, and I uproot myself, or I, I'm trying to do something that isn't in this, that season, then I'm putting a stint on, on what God has for me. I'm, I'm putting a limit on God where God isn't putting a limit there. If I'm trying to um, rest as if it's summer, when actually it's spring and I'm supposed to be sowing, or if I'm trying to harvest thinking it's autumn when, when actually it is winter and, and it's time to, to go down deep, then I'm not being responsible with the season that God's put me in. We're responsible for, for recognising that life has seasons and, and actually faithfulness looks like responding appropriately to that season. If we don't recognise the seasons in our lives, then we could just end up continuing to go through doors and be like, tall trees which have no roots and are easy to fall down. So you might want to have a think about what, what seasons you're in in different areas of life. What season is, are your relationships in? What season is, is work in? What season is, uh, is your time of, of rest in? Things like that. But I just wanted to encourage you with, with this picture here on the screen behind me or potentially coming up on the screen in front of you now. This is, um, this is not actually in my garden, um, but it is very similar to a rambling rose in my garden. On our wall in our garden is a, is a rambling rose called American Pillar, actually. And I, I, I knew that it was a rose, so I planted it in the right sort of soil for that. I put it actually within a boundary of this soil that I planted it in. Because of what it was, I, I put a boundary there for it, an, an identity boundary, if you will. And then we wanted this rose to cover our wall. 
That was actually its purpose. That was its calling. And so within that, we, we don't allow it to, to shoot over the top. And when new vines, what are they called? Stalks? Bits of rose. When they come up and they start going off somewhere else, we make sure that the stronger, more, uh, more uh, uh, the branches that have been around for longer, we allow them to guide these, these newer branches and take them across to the, to the left of the wall or to the right of the wall rather than coming into the garden itself because that's its purpose. It's important that, that they work together, that they understand that they're together in it. And, you know, when the, the season is right, the flowers come out, and when it's, when it's the right time as well, we, we prune it and we make sure that there's, there's room for, for new growth and for it to flourish when the seasons change. There's boundaries of season. And there's this amazing thing called bug killer which we spray on it to make sure that no baddies get in the way of it doing what it's supposed to do and being what it's supposed to be. I, I really care about the rose. I'm, I am the gardener, if you like. I, I planted it, and I really care about it. But you know, how I feel about this rose and the things that I've put in place for it is exactly how God feels about me and you. He wants us to flourish. He's really clear on what we're here for, on who we are, and he will get alongside us to kill the baddies in our life. And if we ever feel, how do I do this? Where do I go? God's put big branches around us to help us. He's put new shoots around us to inspire us, to show us the new life. And he is the gardener. He is the one overseeing the process and doing an amazing, amazing job. He wants us to thrive and flourish. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to kill some baddies and we're going to fill our boundaries. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.